This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. So would you please join me in welcoming T. Uglo to the stage. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's not that tough. <laughs> I do 24 hour flights all the time. Um, I feel sorry for calming. Like, it hurts. Lexus Scooter, I always wanted one of those, but I'm very pleased for Ruth, that's great. And um, Jasa, that was fantastic. I'm not sure what a home hub is. Um, unless it's one of our products, in which case it's fabulous. I work at Google, my name is T. Um, I run Google's Creative Lab um, in Sydney, and I have done it for about five or six years. And we're going to have a little chat today about, I mean, one of the most interesting things is that despite doing that job, um, I, it's, I've been doing it for like 12, 13 years, but I've only recently started talking to UX audiences. I'm not even sure whether UX was a thing when I started. When I first started in 99, I was a designer, but I really should have been paying for the privilege of being a designer. Um, because I had no idea how websites worked. I had to have the notion of a server explained to me several times. Um, and my design skills were limited. The, um, <laughs> so, I, so it's been a bit of a miracle that, that like, I, th I think I actually kept running away from working with computers. But I was part of the first dot-com boom and then bust. Um, and then ran away for a bit. And then in about 2005, 2006, joined Google that at the time felt like a giant American-owned multinational corporation, but actually only consisted of 5,000 people. <laughs> so the last 14 years, as you can imagine, have been something of a trip. Um, Designing around the brain. Right, so I think I've been told, people have been t telling me how to improve my presentations, and one of the things they tell me is that not to stand too close, or not to speak directly into the microphone. Um, one of the things that they tell me, I'll get used to it, don't worry, I've done it before, um, is to give you a kind of rough overview. And that's kind of a rough overview about what I want to talk to you, but it's a lot of words and it's a little boring. Um, and also, it's very, very structured. And I don't really do structure. Like, we have these new notions of structure, which are much more human, the neural network, which is ultimately a very, very human concept. And I find that, that when I try and pull apart what it is that I'm going to talk about, I end up with these um, rather more um, unstructured processes. Because we can draw our neural networks with the nice paths and the nice lines that go in between them. But ultimately, we're not really understanding. They're not following that sequential, logical, formulaic way of understanding the world, just like we don't. And as we move forward, I think one of the most interesting things, and the thing we're going to keep coming back to, is the fact that we have been designing for the tools that we use to understand the information. And we're going to have to start beginning to design for the people who use the tools because the tools are becoming more and more fluid. It's nice that the home hub was given out. 
that's kind of a, a good point. Like those home, those things rely on voice UX. Anyone here work with that? Anyone here do conversation design? Half hands, few things. Okay, five years time, that's going to be half the room. You're going to have conversation experts. You're going to have dialogue flow people. We're going to have um, the, the 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 graphic design of voice design has yet to be invented. We don't know what that UI looks like. So it's a really interesting time. Um, not one of my kind of core specialties. My core specialty is basically mucking about. Um, so I do talky things. I do writey things. Um, I make funny things. And, and I'm gay for Google. <laughs> I queer around the world. Um, that's a thing now. <laughs> you can basically get paid to do that. It's great. Um, <laughs> Some of my talks, a little bit, I was giving um, Debbie a heads up saying, just, just so you know, some of them don't, they're not like normal talks, and these are my favorite Twitter comment, um, YouTube comments that I've ever received. Um, <clears throat> I mean, they say don't read the comments, but you should, right? <laughs> because if you're not failing, <laughs> then how are you going to get any better? Um, I have been making assorted disasters for... 10 years, these are some of them. I use that word advisedly. Like, they are not successful in the way that quite often we want our projects to be successful. Very frequently, they are unsuccessful in that we learn something that we thought we knew, but we didn't know that we didn't know it. And, and that sense of learning gets lost very, very often when people get fixated on the thing they want to build rather than the possibility of building something from a set place. It's really very much about whether you're aiming for something or aiming from somewhere. And within, the creative, within my creative career, I've had the opportunity to do that with all sorts of things. So first of all, with YouTube, when YouTube was a baby, when we bought it for $1.3 billion, which seemed like so much money. Um, actually, still seems like quite a lot of money. <laughs> but there you go. Um, and we weren't really sure where it was or what it was going, and, and we did lots of experiments. We made film. We um, did a, a thing called the YouTube Symphony Orchestra. We um, went to the Guggenheim and, and, and made the YouTube work, this new short-form stuff. And we're like, it's like an art form. It's like video art. We should document. Um, we did a project with NASA that kind of involved experiments, and I think we were going to send a small child into space as a prize, not, not as the experiment. <laughs> and then the lawyers said no, because <laughs> the lawyers always say no. Um, and then we moved on to Chrome. We launched this browser called Chrome. I don't know how many of you were alive when there wasn't a browser called Chrome, but um, <laughs> it's, it didn't have any market share. No one knew what it was. So we had to explain to people what it was like, this idea. It's like saying, yes, you can have a new pair of hands, and they're faster, and they don't pick up germs, um, which was almost literally the product description. Um, but it was so hard to try and explain that. So we ended up coming up with things like Chrome experiments to try and um, explore the potential. And this was just at the HTML5 moment, where that potential for the browser was suddenly extraordinary. 
There's suddenly enormous potential. So we did lots of experiments in that sort of space. And then we had like curious products like social products, which, as you know, Google is renowned for. Um, and so there have been really interesting projects for me over the last five, six years, which have been much more about how we interact and how we use our machines and how we interact with information. Um, and a lot of those revolved around Google Plus and bars and sorts of things. And they got me more into theater, more into the act of theater, more into um, my home space, which is like the arts. Also, one of the projects, I'm not sure it's up there, it was called The Art Project. Um, and that turned into um, the Cultural Institute, which turned into Google Arts and Culture. So sometimes the little things turn into really massive things. Um, and sometimes they don't. Like, this is a, these are a project from a couple of years ago. It's like running I mean, it really is dumb. It's really also very old school. It's basically just Node.js on an Android device pointing at it. And projecting the screen that you're using to do the thing. It's not complex, but it can be complex if suddenly you can let people play a piano, and they like that. Um, and that led to these bigger projects, like a project we did last year with SBS, happened, which was a documentary project. In the afternoon. And God gave me a second chance to live. When I put that necklace on, I feel protected. That's the only thing I brought. It's the essence of our family. Hope, faith, and trust. There is a lot of memories. The kind of, this is a bigger thing. This is like a, this is about as big as any of my projects. I like. Well, obviously some projects get very big, but I'm long gone by that point. It is not in my interest to take something beyond a prototype, to take something beyond a space where it's like, this is what we do, this is it. And then if it's of interest, which it is, but very rarely then, it's normally of interest about a year or two years later. So it's fascinating to see this sort of simple UX, which is like, take the thing which is the most distracting thing in the room, in the art gallery, and turn it into the thing which they need to use in order to experience the artwork or hear the artwork. M make it work so that you can, you can then do kind of multi-choice, so you can have 500 people all watching their own part of the video and hearing their own um, version of the video with their own soundtrack. Um, and then that leads to quite interesting things around how you move around space. This is pretty much all I do for a living. I do whiteboards that no one understands. Um, that is a project. And then we give them to my team, who are, consists mainly of creatives and developers. Smart people, both in their own ways, no idea what the other's saying. And I'm sure this is a common theme, especially in UX, where you have the engineers, and you have the people who make the pretty shapes. That's pretty much how it works. People who build things and people with pencils. Um, and allowing those two groups to communicate. I do like that you don't laugh at the idea that the, the designers are just people with pencils. Normally people are like, yeah. <laughs> There's the serious ones <laughs> and then the idiots. Um, but we know that actually that interface is incredibly important incredibly important, and the gulf between it is increasingly hard to bridge. And we know 
that actually in any development process, that's where you lose your product. That's where everything breaks, is when the, the essence of this, this, this tool that you've built becomes unwieldy, unusable, or just doesn't make sense. I have two small children. Um, they're kind of different. <laughs> um, so one of them is a, um, a very much a dreamer, and the other is very much a thinker, an engineer. Those are not binaries, by the way. There's all sorts of different people in my teams. I hate that kind of notion that there's one or the other. It's just a nonsense term. But it's useful in this space because what I want to talk about is like the way in which culturally, my family tends to orient towards one side, one way of thinking, um, which is fine. We always have. We always will. But it does mean that the child that isn't naturally inclined that way is slightly othered within their own family. And it's not long before they start to feel like they're a bit of a misfit, that they're not the right one, that they're the odd one out, and they start to try and re-engineer how they think. And they're not re-engineering themselves to think brilliantly, they're just re-engineering themselves to think in a way that fits in with the family. This happens in your families, you know it does. It happens in your friends, it happens in your office, it happens everywhere. Um, and, and one of the things I'd love to touch on is how we deal with difference. Um, I have a, I, I'd like, I like trying to explain how um, about leadership, styles of leadership, like, um, because I come from a place where I've never really been able to deal with the hierarchical kind of leadership. You know, one where there's someone at the top, normally a white guy, <laughs> kind of telling everyone else what to do, when to do it, how to do it, how loud, when to shut up. And that's actually not really how, and then when you get to this place that they've decided, their vision, this is what they're going to do. Um, and then um, I prefer a gardening approach, <laughs> which is much more like find the pretty flowers, bury them in the soil, put them around, and then basically kind of water them and talk to them. And then let them do the thing. And then when they've done their thing, other people come along and go, what a beautiful garden. And you go, thank you, it's all my own work. <laughs> so please bear that in mind if I show you anything. <laughs> um, likewise, I don't lead my team, my team leads my team. I, don't, I, I can't tell them, I mean, I try and tell them what to do, but they don't listen to me. The only points of absolute decision are when they tell me to stop doing things. Um, because there is always a point where you have to stop changing things, right? There's a point where you actually have to allow people who are experts to do the thing that they do really well. And I'm not an expert in any of the things that they do. So there's a definite point at which I need to not, I need to become the user because that's the nearest thing I can do to being helpful, which is to be an idiot and to not get it. Um, so I'm quite good at that. But we have lots of different leadership styles. I find this <coughs> slightly endemic across, uh, like across industry. Um, in that we have like a notion of expertise which is important, especially in this new world where 
science is debatable. Um, but we should remember that science is debatable. Science is as physics is, as maths is, as almost anything apart from ballet, debatable. We'll come back to ballet. Um, and, and the way that I often construe this is by thinking about doctors and trying to explain to people that you have a, 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 a kind of, you trust your doctor, everyone trusts their doctor? Mostly, but you definitely trust your doctor more than you would trust your doctor from 20 years ago <laughs> because they didn't know anything. And if you trusted your doctor from 100 years ago more than you trusted your doctor from a day, today, then of course you'd be an idiot because we've learned, right? But along that logic, if we could move me forward 20 years um, without aging, <laughs> um, which we can do just as easily as we can move you back 20 years, like I would be a fool not to trust these doctors over that doctor. And if we could move me 100 years into the future, it would be ridiculous to suggest that the doctors from 100 years ago, the experts from 100 years ago, the nuclear physicists, the, the quantum physicists, I have a big thing with physics, like neuroscientists, behavioral um, psychologists, environmentalists, designers, anyone would be more trustworthy in their expertise because it is an evolving thing. It is an evolving thing, it is a continuum. In the same way that it is a continuum that there are small children, and as a small child, I wanted things to get better. I was excited about what was going to come next. Um, and then I don't really remember the bit where everything was okay. This is great, this is it, this is perfect. I don't remember that happening somehow. But I do remember there being a moment of going, oh my God, everything's going to shit. Why can't it be like it was back then? And what occurred to me was that every single human that's ever existed has almost certainly followed that trajectory. Which means that if you mass them all together, it's a huge wave of people going, isn't life exciting? And that wave will pass through time, from ca cave dwellers to, to space astronauts. Isn't life exciting? Isn't it amazing what we're going to do? Equally, just ahead of them is a group of people going, oh my god, <laughs> stop. So that is a continuum. The second you think, oh, it used to be better, just that's a stupid thought. It's literally redundant. Someone is always having that thought at every moment, in every point of time. Those sorts of continuums are useful when we stop and try and think about doing the right thing, truth, reality. So this is how reality used to work. It used to be very straightforward. You used to be able to look at things, and they would tell you how reality worked. We used to watch TV, we used to have these very, very linear forms, books and libraries, and, and you used to have to go to them, theatres. Um, people would tell you. Um, over the last 20 to 30 years, we've established that reality, whilst reality is a thing, the actual information which colours reality is less certain, and that it depends very much on one's perspective of reality as to what it is that you really see happening. And we see this all over the world. These realities are perfectly valid. They are the same reality. They're just perceived differently. They're different perspectives. Um, and I have a big thing about truth and perspective. I think I'm not a big fan of the idea of truth, absolute truths, because they're generally value-based. For example, um, were the Times to write that, do you know the Times, London Times? It's kind of 
thinks it's important. Um, <laughs> paper record. Um, they, that's, that would mean one thing, right? That's, a, that's an interesting truth. If they were right to write that, it would probably be taken slightly differently, right? You might read that slightly differently. Um, but they're both exactly the same reality. That's true. And the other one's true. That's the title they actually wrote. And the reason I picked it out is because like, it's been written by someone who, who, wants, who thinks the article is about trans relationships. What is a trans relationship? Like, it's not even a thing. It's not a homosexual relationship. There is no such thing as a trans relationship. I suppose if you are trans and you go out with someone who is trans, maybe that's a trans relationship. But I was suspicion that's not what they're talking about. Um, the second part about that is parents try to stop children, as if parents implicitly know best for their children. But as a trans child who wasn't spoken to by their parents, in fact, you had a government in the UK who literally legislated against speaking to me about how I felt, who literally put <laughs> for 20 years a statute on the books that said that we couldn't talk about that reality, that perspective on reality. Homosexuality could not be taught in schools, could not be discussed in, in, in culture. And that's probably why I ended up being mentally ill. So as a parent, I'm more keen on me being trans and not mentally ill than the alternative. That's all that anyone sees is that headline. And just in case you think it's an English thing, the um, Australian has recently gathered together um, an entire section for articles about gender um, called Gender, with lots of different perspectives on gender. And actually, if you look closely, they're kind of, they are lots of different perspectives, but they're all the same perspective. There is no sense of there being alternative views of being perspectives outside of the narrow thing. This is what we're doing. It is troubling. As UX designers, you have to deal with that. I like this photo. I kind of look good in both of them. Um, it's the only time. Um, like, it's also really untrue. I like to use it when I'm talking about data as a kind of example of like really flawed data because you know what? That's just not how it worked. I didn't go from being like a um, white male cis hit stubbly person to a woman, which I am. But it's not a very good, it's not enough data. There's no context. More context here, you see that I, got joined, I joined Google a very long time ago. I wore a shirt on my first day, which was the last time I ever wore a shirt to Google. Um, and then I ate all the food. Um, <laughs> and then I changed my name, which was a big deal. Um, and then I had the world's worst security photo. Um, and then finally, there's this transition. It's a journey. It's still not enough data. It was a very kind of narrow view on that story. We like data. I know you like data, engineers, UX people. So I put in a chart. Um, <laughs> it's got an axis. <laughs> I think it's, um, and it's, you know, it's a distribution chart. And if you draw a curve, 
we have a distribution curve. And I like talking about distribution curves in order to understand um, the diversity of the human experience. Because one of the funniest things is, is that we are increasingly inclined towards normative behaviors because we want to scale the products and services that we bring. Therefore, you have to look for the most applicable um, service, the, one that the, the people that are going to use it the most, the most normal people. Um, and it's very interesting how people are quite happy with being normal. In fact, we do an awful lot to appear normal, um, but not so keen on being uncommon or common, rather. <laughs> no one wants to be common. No one wants to be typical. Everyone wants to be included. Can't work it out. All mean the same thing. There's lots of things I don't know the answer to, by the way. Um, I tend to just float those. <laughs> if you look at this more clearly, without the notion of actual data behind it, you'll realize that we all have aspects to ourselves that are not typical. If you, have, if you don't, then that would make you very untypical, or atypical, if I'm going to use English. Um, and then, so like, you can kind of pile those up around the sides, and you come to this point of realizing that there is nothing that's normal, and that actually all you ever end up with is a huge intersection and someone who, like literally, your user that, that kind of hits all of those intersections, they're kind of bizarre. And even if you feel like you're super normal, like there's nothing you need to think about in terms of inclusion or accessibility or awareness, and like you're, you're white. I, I was this. I know exactly how it feels. Um, <laughs> a white, straight guy. At the very least, one day you're going to be old. And you will be excluded. <laughs> and we all hate it when people want to talk about that in design, but it's really important. This is Dennis. Dennis hid from me the fact that she's ADHD until I thought she was completely mental. And then when she explained it, it became completely normal. This is Annabelle. Annabelle worked on my team for a year, being Annabelle, which is kooky because she's kooky and had nothing to do with the fact that she had um, aphantasia, which is a really interesting condition where you don't create mental imagery. And I'm finding it to be quite common in the creative industries, which is amazing. And now, looking back on it, it was kind of weird watching her work. <laughs> but at the time, you just fudge things along. There she is. Um, <laughs> so I have uh, structural issues with my brain. It's like if you talk about mental health and physical health, people tend to get a little bit squeamish. But like, like health is health, right? My brain is part of my physical health. And actually, the second you take that away, it's all health. Um, it's also worth remembering that the brain is amazing. So you all have amazing brains. Like, and whenever we get caught up with all this AI and all of the technology and all the things you're doing, normally you're trying to get a machine to do one of the tiny things that your brain does so easily that you don't even think it's doing it. Sensory processing, spatial awareness, cognitive bias, um, the semantics of, of language. And that's because of a fantastically complicated array of qualities. I just kind of really think everyone should get into neuroscience just because I'm into neuroscience. <laughs> um, because then you really begin to understand like, what is happening, or quite importantly, what isn't happening. And you begin to understand the things that you didn't know you did know. Um, like neural networks, it's like, actually, my understanding of AI it sort of expanded enormously once someone explained 
how our neural network worked in neuroscience as opposed to an engineer trying to explain it to me with little lines. <laughs> um, and then, I, then you want to make it even more straightforward. Like you, you, you realize that these experiments are going on all the time. I, this is my littlest one. And you realize that they are doing those experiments. They are training their data sets. They are doing audio-spatial awareness. They are looking at object permanence. They are understanding not only that an object will drop and will drop and will drop again, and that a balloon will go up, if it's quite here, and go up and go up, and that your parent will run and catch the balloon and catch the balloon and catch the balloon until a certain point. There was a fixed breaking point in that pattern. <laughs> Good behavioral science. Um, it's like ethology and, you know. Um, <laughs> but you're also learning about um, concepts of attachment and you're training your ears. Like you're understanding when you drop something what that sounds like, what, that, it, that, that you guys can understand that if I stand here, oops, that was the creaky bit. You hear that creaky bit, and then there's a good creaky bit over here. And everyone in the room understands that that creaky bit's over there, and this creaky bit's over here. That's kind of cool. How? Well, we all know it's to do with the tiny things in our, in our ears, the tiny hairs, and it's to do with our brain being very clever. Um, and actually, we've had to train that because everyone's ears are different shapes. It's like we all see differently. So we are spending our childhood doing that training. And if you really want to understand your users, you'd have a look at how complex that training is. Um, and it's fun. <laughs> I think all UX should involve, all uh, user research should involve small children trying to because we're all small children when it comes to the UX. We're all small children. We discovered this when we tried to make books. So one of the projects that I do fairly regularly is, um, um, or have been over the last five years, is looking at ways in which you can take uh, the infrastructure, like the physical infrastructure of a technology, like the book. Like you're taking the physical um, spine and the printedness on the page, and you're looking at how that inhibits the object and the, the, the medium and the content. Like, it is very inhibitory. It means you have to start on page one, and you have to keep going in a linear sequence until you reach page 270, blah. And actually, there's, once you get to the internet, you're like, there's not really a reason for that. It's 500-year-old tech. I mean, even with these little machines, like, even with the kindly things, why? why, why? It doesn't have to do that. Um, we're not rodents. We can, we can adapt, we have plasticity, so we built all these books that basically moved, moved, played with those ideas, that moved words in and out, um, that allowed you to move through a narrative that was um, literally geographic, that was based on Street View, um, or that, had, that were dialogue-based. Um, this leads to lots of interesting problems. Then we did simple books, we did one which uses your um, camera and all the geodata that you've got, and, or, or the data that you've got on your phone to create a ghost story, which is spooky and also spooky. Um, <laughs> it's like it's good for things to be creepy. It teaches us in a different way to have that conversation. Um, we made a book which was very, very multilinear. We made a book which was literally about all that stuff I was talking about, perspectives, about having multiple perspectives and being able to move in and out between different perspectives. So we got everything from kind of Me Too to Mega to um, 
and there's an emo section, and there's an AI section at the end, which doesn't make any sense. But um, I left it in because it's super because it's really cute. It's like it was a way of going, yeah, we tried to get an AI to do part of this book, and it's rubbish. But it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful part of the book, but it doesn't make any sense. Um, it's a learning. We did a book with um, blockchain, which is about ownership and provenance. Well, it's sort of about ownership and provenance. I mean, for me, it's about ownership and provenance. That's the meta point of the, the, the project. Um, within the book itself, it's a sort of self-destructing novel where you have to remove words as you move through, um, which is another thing you just can't do with a printed book. Ironically, we then made a bookcase because people don't understand what you're talking about. So we made a bookcase. I mean, literally a bookcase with, with the books in the phones and they stick out. And then we took that to the British Library and they really liked it, which is cute. And I actually really love the British Library because they are dealing with the fact that these are books and they are duty bound to um, archive books that are entirely temporal and ephemeral in nature. And how do you archive a book when it's working off, say, Street View and those Street View images get updated every however long, two years, three years. So 10 years later, the whole story is completely different and impossible. And you can't find things because they've been physically removed from the world. So you can't carry on with the story. How is that meant to work? Uh, and again, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but I like that they're willing to take it on as a challenge. Most recently, we've been working with audio. As I said, this is a, this is a cookbook that, that you kind of play around with. Not a cookbook, a storybook. It takes place in a kitchen, and you kind of bowl around it. It's audio-based. Um, and a lot of the work that we've been doing is audio-based. A lot of it is about moving around space. Because I, every time I talk about this idea of augmented reality, people think I mean, like, augmented reality. And that's not really augmented reality to me. My favorite kind of augmented reality is the sliding door. You walk towards it, a computer senses your intent, and it opens the doors, and you walk through, and then it closes them. And it has augmented your reality. So I like a more literal meaning of augmented reality, which is that a machine can augment your reality. And as we were discussing with the ears, like, your ears are incredibly sensitive. They pick up and, and, and dispense with an enormous amount of information incredibly effectively, especially when you're asleep which is handy of them. That's why you have to close your eyes, because your eyes can't even do that. But your ears, your ears are still going. You're still, your brainwave is slow, but it's still working out all of that data. And if you hear something scary, you will wake up. Um, so I'm particularly interested, not so much, I'm going to show an AR with a screen thing, but also um, how we move through space, like what that, what that becomes when actually it's the reality of the world that is your user experience rather than the reality of the screen. Because the screen is a historical, the screen is the book. It's old tech. It's just the way that we had to get the content to you. And that's not going to be the way we get the content to you. We can see that. Otherwise, people will be making better screens. They're not making better screens. They're working on things that we used to do before screens. They're working on gesture. They're working on voice. They're working on intent. They're working on how we orientate ourselves in space. So I work with cultural groups, and a lot of it is to do with those sorts of things. A lot of it is to do, we play, I play. I play in these spaces. So we did a theater performance with um, a group called Punch Drunk with kids, where it's about how they 
where they are in space. Getting a computer, a phone, to understand actually where you are and what you're looking at, location and orientation in space, is actually really hard. There are a lot of different ways to do it. You know, and you think of the obvious ones, which is like GPS, which is NAF because of the army, um, and Wi-Fi, which is limited because of physical things. All of the RFID kind of suite of fun, different, different, different wavelengths, different forms. And then actually, what we discovered is that the best form, the best wavelength is the light spectrum. So we actually end up using the camera and using the AR tools on the camera to map us into, because we're only really hacking off the back of other people's stuff, right? I do, my team's tiny. We don't do, you saw how many of us, we don't do anything. We just take stuff and, and play with it. So um, recently we did a project called Displayed, which was working with a disabled dance troupe where we wanted to locate, we wanted to place the sounds, the experiences of, of the, the, the mental experience of these dancers inside them. So as you moved around a performer, you could hear them, as well as see them, as well as experience their dance. Um, we actually worked on this with Liz Jackson, who I think spoke to you yesterday, who is a huge hero of mine, even though she can come across as a bit spiky. Um, <laughs> I hope she wasn't too. Um, this is the, these are our performers, and I'll show you a short video. Like You can see kind of how it worked. Actually, in this particular performance, there's a moment there's a period called the, the uh, sculpture garden where everyone stands still and basically we put everyone in these rigs and they are still rigs because it's clumsy because we're not there yet but you have your little ear pods it's not long these are the spaces that we're moving into where you begin to walk around a space and understand the world through that user experience you get the information that you would have got through the screen but without this People look at me and make assumptions. It's not something that you can just turn off. My grace, physicality, and vulnerability are all on display. It scares me because if people knew how angry and sad and tired I was, would they like me? afterwards talked about the experience, what they felt. The engineers talked about their feelings. I don't know how often you do onboarding stuff or user testing, but getting the engineers to talk about their feelings, how they felt experiencing the project, this is kind of a magic moment for me. And it was very, very eye-opening. Anyway, um, I'm going to bring us back to that little blue line, like that normative curve. Um, one of the problems that we're facing, that you're facing actually, I'm kind of too old now. One of the problems that, that we're facing is that this normative curve is applied not just to society, not just to design. It is applied as a matter of principle to how we train 
um, our machines, how we build those neural networks, just like we have as children spent years and years building, doing our data testing and validation um, and training our, our data sets and training our, our sensors, so has have AIs and they are training on the internet because that's all they've got. It is historic data. We know this to be a problem, but even when it's not historic data, we have really interesting issues that kind of turn up. This is a project, I don't know if you know it, called QuickTor, which came out of um, an AI experiment, these experiments that was done in the New York lab. I love this project. It's, if you, have you done it, Hans? Yeah, okay, that's enough of you to pretend that you all have. Um, <laughs> If you haven't, you should go and try this. Basically, you draw. It tells you what to draw. You draw. It's Pictionary. <laughs> you it tells you what to draw. See, that's a hammer. Of course it's a hammer. Um, and, um, and then it decides whether you, it recognizes it or not. And it's improving and improving and improving the more you draw. So that it learns, not from you drawing it, but from millions and millions and millions of people drawing. It's doing exactly the same thing as we did. It's training and testing and validating and learning and getting better and better and better at recognizing <laughs> grapes or blackberry. What is it? <laughs> I can't even remember what I was drawing. Oh, yeah, it's a blackberry. Anyway, we end up with these, these huge data sets. We've made them open to the public. Um, and the really interesting thing about them is like you get enormous sets of data around what people draw. So the, the set of data around a banana is so, so sort of normal that even the curve looks like a banana. <laughs> but the set of data around shoes, much more complex. Because actually, to begin with, heels are fine. But as the computer learns, it discovers that heels are actually abnormal. And that maybe those weren't what people meant when they drew a shoe. Maybe that's a different kind of shoe. So literally, within six months, Stilettos or high heels were no longer shoes. We taught them out of existence. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about these data sets, when we talk about training, when we talk about testing, when we talk about inclusion, when we talk about erasure. That's what we're talking about. It's not complicated. It's actually easy. It's not anyone's fault. It's actually intentional. And we have these huge public access data sets, which I use on a regular basis and slightly, uh, slightly anxious about, because they are an issue in and of themselves. Um, if the data doesn't exist, you don't exist. And if you don't exist, then you have no way of introducing your data into the data set. And even when you do introduce your data into the data set, it has to be so significant that it's actually not accurate data anymore, because you're a tiny part of that data set. Um, I, I can explain at length, and face blind, by the way, and trans, which you mentioned, um, how important that is. But, we, but you know, we wanted to do a little test the other day with a watch where, where you just set a watch and let it talk to your phone, which talks to a clip. And so when I see people that I know, it looks at my photos database, and then it tells my watch that I know them. You know, pretty straightforward. Does it ever can, can do something that I can't do? It is enabling. I'm not sure whether Liz would approve of it or not, but it is using technologies that are good. Or, um, like, and then there's this issue, which is that, well, then actually my friends, because this is how working with accessibility works, go, but then it could put the name. I was like, yeah, of course it would have to have the name. It can't just show me the face, otherwise I'm not going to know who it is. 
They're like, so basically, you're giving me a watch that can tell me the name of the person I'm standing in front of. And I was like, yes, it's a name watch. I was like, yes, that's brilliant. That's every conference ever sorted. That's every awkward pub meeting sorted. That's every horrible moment sorted. And then actually, we, we, you follow that thought experiment through, and you can see how easily that would happen. And then you can see how easily that data set of photos of my friends could be replaced with a data set of people who, I don't know, um, voted one way or another in the American election. Um, happened to be of a religious persuasion, happened to be of an ideological persuasion, happened to be Masons, happened to be queer. Um, and then you've got a watch, which is basically a queer bashing watch, where you can walk down the street with your little clip, get a little buzzy thing and go, that person's gay, let's kick the shit out of them. And that's not that helpful. Because there are a lot of places in the world where I'm not only not welcome, I'm not allowed to exist. So kind of matters, unless you're really normal. And as we've discussed, you're not really normal. We're working on various different projects to try and work on that. You'll see lots of different things happening. Um, but it's a problem for all of us, because you need to apply it every day. It's just not something that you can think about forgetting. You can't just let it float by. You can't let it be someone else's problem. I don't really like takeaways. My view is, is <laughs> I've been standing up here talking for 40 minutes. If you haven't taken anything away, what are you doing here? <laughs> but, uh, but you know, the people who tell me how to do presentations say, no, 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 takeaways. So here's the first one. <laughs> Mainly I've worked out that you really are not going to know what's going to happen. If everything just happens as you meant it to happen, lucky you. That's lovely. Good for you. Because that's kind of boring. Um, the other thing is that everything is structured, almost everything. There are things which are real, there are things which are absolute, but there's this obsession with the idea that things which are actually intersubjective, they're subjective, they're not objective. They're intersubjective. We all agree to agree that they're real. They are the structures of our society, and they cannot be changed. Them's the rules. That's the law. It's like, okay, but that kind of means that everything is adaptable. So fucking with the structure, is kind of my main takeaway. That's how we've done anything interesting. By the way, that's the accessibility symbol for Android, and I love it because it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Not quite sure how they do that. Um, remind everyone you meet that they have the most extraordinary thing in between there is, because we forget. We think we have the most extraordinary thing in our pocket, and it's. It's a toy in comparison. And you do you. I can't stress this enough. <laughs> and I, I, I left the kind of source material for it. But like, because it's a good UX gag. But like, there is no point us building a normative world for, for, for users or anyone else, because there is not a single user who is normal. Every brain is different, every person is different, everyone you meet is different, and whilst that's not helpful to you, whilst it would be a lot easier if I could say, oh, build it like this, that's what most people are like, it's just not a good idea. So you do you, and please bring it to work. Thank you very much.